Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Pastor Roger, for leading us in time of uh, reflecting upon our Savior, upon the hope, the anchor of our souls in the midst of all of life's uh, storms. It's a welcome to, again, I just want to welcome all of you here. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look to the word this morning in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 41. Again, I want to extend a warm welcome to all our guests, the visitors with us. Uh, Welcome from, uh, man, all the East Coast. It must be East Coast week this week, so glad to have you with us. Uh, Maybe next week we'll all come to you uh, there in the East Coast and visit you all. But it's good to have uh, all of you here with us as we look to the word. Um, Isaiah chapter 41 is where we'll be this morning. Isaiah chapter 41. In this wonderful book that we've been looking at, this prophetic vision that's often entitled the fifth gospel, kind of, I hope that you really do kind of get to see that it, in a sense it is like a fifth, it really is a, a fifth gospel. If we think of the gospels as uh, something that reveals Jesus Christ to us, this book, this prophecy of Isaiah, all the, throughout it is a revelation so clearly of Christ to us. And uh, that's why we've been studying it. Hopefully you see that, you've been blessed by it. Well, uh, we arrive at chapter 41 this morning, and we're going to read. Uh, we're going to read the verses of this book uh, of the text within the sermon today because it's just 29 verses, quite long. But I definitely want to read all the all the text, so uh, we'll read it along we go. And so once you get there, we'll we'll pray and then we'll start Isaiah 41. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Eternal, true. Father, thank you for your spirit that teaches us and guides us and leads us into your truth. Thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful, transforming, renewing our souls. Thank you, Lord, that it is effective, that it goes forth and will not return void. For each and every soul that is gathered here this morning, Lord, we pray that each and every one would hear what your word has to say to them. Lord, speak to them, speak into their lives, your truths. Cause them, cause all of us to grow in a love for you, a love for our Savior. Help us to learn to trust you more in the face of our tumultuous world events. Lord, we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you look around the world today, you will find that we live in a world that is constantly in tumult, constantly in, like as if carried about in waves of, of, of rage, waves of despair, waves of anger, constantly being overwhelmed by the forces of this world. Whether oftentimes it is tumult or distress that is caused by individual actions or it's caused by geopolitical activity of the nations, or it's caused by natural forces beyond our control. The consequences of living upon in such a world and in such activity and such events is that we find a world that is oftentimes distressed, a world that is often angry, a world that is often fearful. And while these events of our world disturb and shake mankind, we as Christians ought to know, we as Christians who know our Bible, who have the word of God written to us, when we read about the Bible, we read about our God, we ought to know that these events that shake mankind do not shake our God. 
These events that may cause distress to us, that are uncontrollable to us, are not a cause of distress for our God. They're not uh, that which is uncontrollable to Him. In fact, the truth is, He is the one who controls all these events of our world today. He is the one who stills the roaring of the seas, who stills the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. David, uh, this is the Psalm 65, he is according to David, the God of our salvation, the one who is the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea. You see, when we look at the Old Testament, we see God who stills the seas and stills the waves and the, the roaring of, this, of the seas and waves and the tumults of the people. We oftentimes will think of God as being the God of Israel, that he is for them. He looks out for them. And that's what we'll find in this passage. God looks out for his chosen nation, Israel, no doubt. But the Old Testament also, as we've been studying in Isaiah and we, we read in other texts like uh, Psalm 65, we read earlier in Psalm 27 at the very beginning of our service, that God is the God of salvation, not just for Israel, but God is the God of salvation for the ends of the earth, for all the families of the earth. This is evident in the book of Isaiah for us this morning. As a, just a bit of review for us as we look to Isaiah, we learn that Isaiah has the theme of salvation. That it's the Lord who is the author of salvation or the salvation of the Lord. That God delivers his people. That whenever God's people are in trouble, God will deliver them. God promises deliverance. We looked at the, the, in chapters 1 through 39 last uh, two years that God, there's a judgment, that why we need deliverance is that God has, is a, has a judgment uh, upon his, upon the people of Israel. And not only upon the people of Israel because of their sin, but also upon the nations of the earth because of their sin as well. And now we've begun this year looking, or this, part, this particular part of our year, looking at chapters 40 through 66. Now we now turn to God's promise of deliverance, God's comfort for Israel, a promise of comfort to deliver them from not only Babylonian captivity because of their sin, but also to deliver them from not just physical captivity, but the spiritual captivity of their souls because of their fallen nature, their sin against a holy God. And God and this salvation is bound up in one person, oftentimes called the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. But he is, as we're going to see in the, in the in upcoming chapters, he is called God's servant. The, the messianic suffering servant, as we'll see eventually, arrive at that, the crescendo, great crescendo in Isaiah 53. But we're still not there yet. It's, God is going to develop this theme of this servant that's coming, in which, upon which all of salvation of Israel and upon the ends of the earth depends upon. As we look our, to our text this morning, Isaiah chapter 41 follows that great chapter 40, the promise of comfort, comfort through the Messiah. 41, in chapter, here in chapter 41, in case uh, uh, the, the doubts of the people of Israel are, are assuaged through this promise or this revelation of the character of God, that they don't have to be afraid because God will help them. In a world of political tumult, the people of God do not have to fear 
the nations that surrounded them, the enemies that all were, that were around them, mightier than they, because God reveals in his word that he will help them. Today's passage encourages his chosen nation to not fear, to not be afraid of the nations around them. By application, I, I believe that we could use this to apply to ourselves. Not only as a, we're not a nation in a sense, but as the church of God, we are a people of God, that we too do not need to be afraid of the events surrounding us, of the things that are out of our control, that we too can learn to put our trust in our God who will help us. But not only do we see that this uh, message is a, a message for uh, the nation Israel, which it primarily is, it's also a message of hope for the world. That the hope for the world is the same hope for Israel. It's bound up in this one who is the servant that we'll see in the chapters to come. So as we look then, as we, come, as just, as we look at Isaiah 41, we'll divide it into three sections. It is actually kind of a, a little court case, uh, if you will, that God has with the nations of the earth. A dialogue. That's when he challenged them to, to show that they are, show what they can do to reveal themselves. And as we're going to look at this outline then, we're going to see three reasons for God's people to not fear tumultuous world events, but to trust in their God. I think uh, for many of us today, uh, we, we just kind of even highlighted with our uh, love offering today that there are many things in this world that are out of our control. You can imagine many of our beloved saints over who live in Houston have been overwhelmed by the flood and um, many of them lost all, everything uh, that, they, that they owned and they lost their homes and livelihoods and jobs. It's going to take many years probably to rebuild the city of Houston. But even for the, our believers, our, our saints, uh, and, and though they may naturally feel fearful, uncertain about what is taking place for them, I hope that, and, and that for them and even for us as we think about those kinds of events, we too have our share of natural disasters. We can think about all the other things that cause us fear. That ultimately, our hope, our peace, our comfort comes because we have a God. We have a God who is true and real. He's greater than all the things that cause us fear. So and we can trust in him. So let's like to take a look at this passage then. And I want to just walk us through it, kind of tell, explain the text to us, and hopefully may you draw encouragement from this as those who live in a world of tumultuous events. So the first reason we find to not fear, and to not fear the world events, but to trust in God, is because God is greater than the nations. Now this is important because the, green, the primary fear, the primary cause of fear for Israel was the surrounding nations that, they dwelt, that lived around them. And so God begins in verses 1 to 7 by addressing those nations. And he tells them in these verses that he is greater than they. Verse 1. Coastlands, listen to me in silence. Let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. So the word coastlands here is sometimes translated as islands. If you have your, some of your translation will have islands. And these coastlands, these islands, are basically those places that are the farthest reaches of the earth. They're the places that are far away. That you, you don't, can't just walk there. You can't just ride there. You can't just ride a horse there. You have to actually get a ship and go there and travel by sea. So these are the farthest nations. And really, but these coastlands, then, by referring to the farthest nations, are really referring to all the nations. God is addressing all the nations of the earth. He's addressing them 
these nations in a challenge, almost like a courtroom. He calls them to first listen to his, his case, what he brings to them. They'll listen to me in silence. And then he calls them to gather their strength, to come forward, to speak, and then see if they can address his challenge to them. Now, what is the challenge that he has for the nations? Well, we find in verse 2. Look at verse 2 and 3. Here's the specific challenge that he has for them. And it's put in form of a question. Again, a rhetorical question. Just like we saw in the latter half of verse 40, chapter 40. Verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls and rises to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Now, this is kind of odd. It's kind of, if you don't know the historical background of this, you would just kind of like, what is God talking about? But this verse is God describing his, uh, uh, an activity that he is bringing to pass. That he is describing a ruler, there's some ruler, a man who comes forth from the east, first of all. He's going to come from the east, so that is the east of uh, either Jerusalem or the east of Babylon, where if this is, in, it seems to be written to Israelites who are living in the Babylonian captivity, written to, for them in the future. So, but to the east of them. That there's this, gonna be this ruler who will be raised up and called to carry out God's righteous plans. In fact, he will be called to the feet of God, as it is described here. He will, um, in verse 2. And you kind of think of this. This is a terminology of this ruler, this mighty ruler is going to come up. It's going to be someone who serves God, in a sense, at hand and feet. He's going to come to God's feet and answer to God. So even though he's a mighty ruler, he's going to be a servant of God. How will he serve? Well, the description here have him basically conquering nations, conquering kings with his sword and bow. And God is the one who accomplishes this. God arouses him from the east. He basically draws him out from the east. He calls him to do to his bidding. He, God delivers all the nations before this ruler, subdues kings before this rulers. He makes, and makes the nations like dust and wind-driven chaff before this ruler. Verse 3 specifically reveals that this ruler would be a new conqueror. He would not be a, someone that the Israelites already knew. So he wouldn't be an Assyrian ruler. He wouldn't be a Babylonian ruler who had already traversed those rules before. This would be someone who never had never traveled to, um, to Babylon before. The majority of commentators agree that this is a prophecy of the rise of the Persian king Cyrus. And we'll learn more about him in the chapters ahead, particularly chapters 44 and 45. But if you remember our study through Ezra... Cyrus was a very significant king. He was the first Persian king. He, uh, he according to the book of Ezra, when he came into, when he came into power and, and basically took over the Babylonian, what was the Babylonian empire, when he conquered Babylon, he began a series of, of political, well, foreign, uh, foreign efforts to reform. He set free all the nations that had been king captive by Babylon and sent them home to their nations, including the Israelites. And he sent them home, he sent the Israelites home to rebuild their temple after 70 years of captivity. And this is really cool because this, this would take place around five, uh, 520 B.C. Now think about this, 520 B.C. is when this would take place. But when is Isaiah written? When did Isaiah live? Seventh century. Just to say about 700 B.C. Nearly 180 years later, God is naming Cyrus. 
In fact, Cyrus' name, not mentioned here, but it will be specifically mentioned, 44, chapter 44, verse 18, and chapter 45, verse 1. You go turn there, and you'll see Cyrus' name specifically, explicitly mentioned. God, this is our God. He says, you know, he is one is orchestrating all the events of this world. He's greater than these nations that come and go. He, in fact, even raises up future rulers of these nations. You know, in Israel, in the writing of Isaiah's day, the Assyrian Empire was the mightiest. By the time of the, their captivity, the Babylonian Empire would be the greatest. But God is talking about a time when the Persian Empire will be the greatest. And he says he will raise up one named Cyrus to, sit, to deliver Israel from their captivity. And so this is his challenge to the nation. He says, he's telling them before it's all going to happen. In verse 4, he emphasizes the, the fact, the important fact here is not that Cyrus actually sets the Israelites free. The important fact that we must learn and notice is that who brings this to pass? Who's behind all this? Who is behind all the events of our world concerning Israel, but concerning the church today even? Who is behind in verse 4? Look at verse 4 with me. Who has performed and accomplished it, God says, calling forth the generations from the beginning, you see, who calls forth the Assyrians? Who calls forth the Babylon? Who then calls forth the Persians and the Medes? I, the Lord, is the one who does it. I am the first, and with the last, I am he. That is, he's the eternal God. He's been there the very first generation, the first empire. He's going to be there at the last empire. God is the one who causes all these things. He makes it come to pass. God is completely in control of human history. He raises the one who raises up Cyrus to defeat Babylon and set his people free. God is greater than nations. And so he, this is his challenge. He says, well, this is, what I've done. this is what I'm going to do. How will you answer? How will the nations respond? In, his, in verses 5 through 7, he, we see how the nations respond to God's activity of raising up Cyrus. The coastlands, verse 5 and 7, the coastlands have seen, that is, they've seen Cyrus, they've seen what he does, and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. You see, first of all, verse 5, the response of the coastlands, the nations, is that when Cyrus rises up, here comes another empire, another mighty empire. You know, you would think the Syrian empire was the devastating. Nineveh, Jonah, there was a reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because Assyria was wicked and evil. Then comes the Babylonians. And here they come. And they take everybody into captivity that they conquer. And they're bad. And they're wicked. Nebuchadnezzar. Nabopolassar. All these guys. You know, these are wicked, evil kings. And then here comes the Medo-Persian Empire. King Cyrus who comes. And again, the nations. When You can imagine if you're a little tiny nation that's just constantly being conquered and conquered and conquered. You can just imagine that... This, <clears throat> that for the, all these little tiny nations, there is nothing but just fear and dread because they know it's not just being, you know, nicely, okay, here, you're just going to go here. Along with it comes death, slaughter, looting, raping, pillaging, and all sorts of destruction that go along with it. Disease, distress. And the nations rise up in fear because they know what is coming with a new king, with Cyrus. They're afraid. That is because they can't control it. 
They cannot oppose Cyrus. They will be afraid. And what do they do in response? What do you do when you're afraid? Well, they do the same things that you and I might do. First of all, we look to ourselves. And they go and they, these guys tell, look, start, these, um, the people start telling each other, hey, they encourage their neighbor, be strong, be strong. You know, unless your strength is from the Lord, this is one of the greatest lies you can tell yourself. One of the greatest lies. You can mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, hey, you just put your mind to it, you, you, just kinda, you can do it, be strong, you can do it. The thing is, there will come a time when you will face something that you are not strong enough to handle, that is greater than you. And you are going to feel, and if you believe that being strong is all that's needed, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But that's what they were saying. Let's just be strong. This is humanism. They're just trusting in themselves. Be strong. But then, not only do we tend to turn to humanism, but then we we turn outward sometimes. And for these, the nations, they turn to their idols. Instead, they looked to their idols, the, the craftsmen. They were started to build many different idols. Oh, when there's destruction is coming, these enemies, we need to build more idols. And so they built, they got their smelters, their craftsmen, their, their metal workers, their hammers. They were beating things. And they said, oh, hey, it looks good, man. Oh, your, your idol's looking really sm- sharp and smooth. Good job. And now make sure, you, make sure you, you nail it just right so it doesn't fall down. It's okay to laugh at that, okay? Because it's funny. So here's this thing. If here's the structure, and people are turning to idols that they have to build, is doesn't that kind of sound foolish to you? It's <laughs> like, uh, if you have to build it, it's not going to help you. If you have to make it stand, it's not going to help you stand. Especially against Cyrus and God, who behind, much less God behind him. See, the, the nations turn to humanism. They turn to other religions. They turn to the gods. And they have, they have nothing. They're hopelessly lost against God's servant, Cyrus. Although the tiny nation of Israel had much to fear from the surrounding nations, we learn that God is essentially greater than the nations around them. He shows that by what he can do. Because he is the one who controls all the events, the geopolitical events of the world. Not only in our day, but in, in in, uh, in Isaiah's day as well, and in uh, the Assyrian Empire, and the Babylonian Empire, and yes, even the great American Empire. We, though, tend to worry and fret about things that are going on in our world today. A lot of it's influenced by, of course, we just reading what, telling, responding to what the news shows us. We're worried about, you know, little nations with nuclear weapons, we're worried about, you know, groups of people with terrorist uh, intent with their bombs and their cars. We're worried about those, with, uh, those nations with skilled hackers and hacking my, you know, my iPhone and my you know, iPad and stealing whatnot, you know, from my, my, my data, my, pride, my identity. We worry about, we're distressed by things that are outside of control like the natural forces. We think about Hurricane Harvey recently, but here in San Francisco, uh, we ought to be aware of the, the reality of earthquakes that take place as well. There's a lot of things in our world we can't control. A lot of things we can be afraid of. And we can turn inwardly. Man, be strong. We can turn outwardly to other nations, to, or to other gods and our idols and, and worship them and call upon them. But that's not how the people of God ought to reply. We ought to reply by trusting in our God. 
The God who is in control of all things, who is sovereign, is greater than all that the nations of our earth. This is our God. A few chapters later, God will call Israel as a witness to the truth of this. That we as the people of God, and Israel as the people of God, of all peoples are to be, are be examples of trusting in God. Because when we trust in God in the midst of devastating events in our world, we are a testimony to the people outside. We just heard a great message last Sunday about being light of the world, and I really appreciate that. How we respond to trials is a, is a sign, is a testimony to the world of the greatness of our God. And we re, a place that we see this in, is Isaiah 43. It's a good cross-reference. We'll look at it in the upcoming, upcoming weeks. But I want to see, show what God says to Israel. He says to Israel, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. We learn in this text, in this this passage, that God saves his people or chose the nation Israel to be his witnesses. They of all people know, ought to know who their God is the deliverance that he's provided for them. And they are to know that he's the savior. When the nations roar and the events shake the earth, the world may fret, but the people of God are to be witnesses of his saving power. They've seen it time and time again, just as you and I have seen God's deliverance in our life time and time again. God's people know his salvation. We know his salvation. We particularly know the the salvation from the greatest threat of all, and that is the salvation, salvation from our sin through Jesus Christ. And because of this, God is, God is greater than the nations of this responsibility uh, to be witnesses. We can have confidence to know that God's going to deliver us. And that leads us to the second reason for God's people to not fear tumultuous world events and to trust the Lord is that God will help his chosen nation. God is greater than the nations is one reason. The second reason, God will help his chosen nation. Because of your particular place Israel, as his God's chosen nation, you can have hope and confidence that God's going to help you in the face of these things that are out of our control. There's a contrast here in verse one, from verse one to seven, the nations to Israel here in verse eight. So he says, verse eight, but, but you, Israel, unlike the nations of the earth, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God assures Israel that she does not have to fear because she is his chosen nation. Israel is his servant. God, she is Jacob, whom I have chosen. See, as the descendants here of Abraham and Jacob, the Israelites were to know that God, already had the the already had the knowledge of God's deliverance of their people. Remember Abraham, how God led Abraham. He went to Abraham while Abraham was the Ur of Chaldees, and he told him, "Go 
to a place, a land that I will show you. And there I'm going to make you a mighty nation. When it was just Abraham and his wife Sarah, and they were barren. And he says, I'm just going to go to some place I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. And Abraham believed. Abraham followed and obeyed. And God made him into a mighty nation. We think also for the Israelites, they would have thought of Jacob, right? Jacob, whom they had chosen. Jacob, Jacob was actually had to be cast out of the promised land because he had deceived his father and Esau, his brother, wanted to kill him. But Jacob, though he had to flee the, the promised land, what happened to him? God also worked in his life. God also protected him. God also helped him. And instead, and though he went out empty, he came back into the promised land with what? With well, multiple wives and 12 kids. And more, actually, 12 sons and more. With a wealth of abundance. The people of God, the Israelites, these chosen nations, the descendants of Abraham, all of these references reminded them that God guided, their, helped their, their descendants, and God would help them. In the days of Cyrus, God would also gather Israel from the ends of the earth. Just as he gathered back Jacob, he would bring Israel back to Jerusalem. And that's what God did in the days of Cyrus. Twice God emphasized the truth that Israel is his servant, in verse 8 and verse 9. And constantly because Israel is his servant, then God is their God. She is chosen as a blessing. There's a purpose as Israel as a servant. Not only we've seen that they were to be a testimony of God's character, but if you just go back to Genesis 12 even. When God chose Abraham, he wanted to bless Abraham. He blessed him for what purpose? so they can enjoy themselves? No, God blessed them so they would be a blessing. And a blessing not just to just the people around them, but the blessing to all the families of the earth. That's the, why God chose the nation of Israel. That's their servant. That's their responsibility as Israel. The gospel begins and starts with the nation of Israel, but it goes beyond Israel. It's meant for the ends of the earth. It's meant for the Gentiles too. And because of Israel's choice by God, because he chose them, they could be assured then that he would not forsake them. Verse 10 is a, is a powerful, comforting promise. He tells him that here in verse 10, do not fear. And then he gives them reasons for I'm with you, for I'm your God. And he promises to strengthen them, to help them, to uphold them. All these things are just com- words of comfort to them. And this is the promise for the people of God, for Israel. But it's also as we've read in other cross-references, we'd find that this is true too for us as the people of God. That because God is our God, we are his chosen people, that too God will also help us when, in, when, when we need deliverance. Well, the God, God who would help Israel because they are his chosen nation, God promised to deliver them first from their enemies in verse 11 to 16. And we see in verse 11 to 16, behold, all those who are angered at you will be ashamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. So again, God promised to deliver Israel from all her enemies. And this, this repetition that basically God's going to wipe away all their enemies. There's nothing to be left of them. Israel did not have to lift a single finger to be set free from Babylon. God did it completely. They all of a sudden, one day, in fact, you know, when, when um, in Daniel, we see that when Cyrus conquered Babylon, 
he just walked right in. There was not a single battle. He just walked right in because people hated uh, the, the Babylonian king so much that they, just, they thought it was a freedom to actually let King Cyrus come into their midst. And they, let, they opened the gates and he came in and just kind of took over Babylon without any, uh, any uh, fight whatsoever. But all, all of a sudden, in one night, the enemy of Israel was nothing. We see that emphasis of nothingness here. Nothing, they will perish. And nothing, they will be non-existent. They will be as nothing. They were completely destroyed. The reason, again, is in verse 13. Because the Lord is their God. That's what's, why their enemies will be destroyed. They don't need to be afraid. God's going to help them. Not only will he deliver them from the nations, but God will use Israel to judge the nations. Verse 14 to 16. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you. That word worm is used in Psalm 22, even of Jesus. It's a, a picture of someone who's looked down upon, who's considered as insignificant. Jacob is that kind of nation. It's considered to be a slave nation by the time of Babylonian captivity. God says, don't be afraid. Even though you are a worm, I will help you, says, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. You know, you don't have to be afraid. You may be a little tiny nation in captivity, but your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, is God himself, the Holy God, the Holy, Holy, Holy God of Isaiah 6. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Israel, though weak, is going to be turned into, according to verse 15, a sharp thresh, a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You may have no idea what that means, right? But it looks pretty, it sounds pretty nifty, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, it's going to, <laughs> I was thinking about it. You know, I could describe what a new th- sharp threshing sledge with double edges looks like. But it's easier just to simply say, God's going to make you like an iPhone 8. You know, you know it's going to be great, right? Okay, I'm not an Apple fanboy, but it's going to be great. All right. And that's what these new, sh- God's going to make them an instrument that's new, sharp. It's going to be such that it's built with double edges. It's going to basically be so effective that it's going to thresh mountains, pulverize them, make the hills like chaff. Oh, this is, this is powerful stuff. This is, this is more powerful than your little blender at home. You will winnow them. He's going to, and this is, and one could say, one could interpret this. Is this, is this uh, actual promises of, of agricultural, you know, success? For Israel, maybe. And you, could, you want to take it literally, you can look at it in that way. But this idea of winnowing uh, and uh, scattering, particularly in light of verse 11 13, would probably indicate that this is not just a promise of agricultural success, but really effectiveness, but probably a destruction. Of, uh, God will use Israel as a nation to destroy the nations, to judge the nations. And most likely, this is going to be, this is actually looking forward. 11 13 might have looked to the Babylonian captivity, setting free. But then verse 14 to 16 is probably looking forward to the millennial kingdom when God himself is going to use, it's going to come and Jesus is going to come and reign and uh, the nations will be judged through uh, the nation Israel even. But um, so we move on. But there again, the redeemer is none other than uh, the Holy One. And Israel will glory in her redeemer. God's going to be the one who accomplishes this. He's the one behind it all. We continue uh, looking at verse 17, 20. God will also help Israel. We're also on the idea of God helping Israel. How will he help? Well, he's going to help through the provision of their needs. The provision of their needs. Verse 17 and 20. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. So there's going to be, this is either a literal physical thirstiness 
or is this a spiritual thirstiness? And both have arguments, but there's a need there, and their tongue is parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands fountains of, fountains of water. I will put cedar, the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created and so the nations and the people of God and the people are going to be in need. There's going to be a neediness. They're going to be thirsting for water. But God, and God will mightily provide. He's going to be the source of this water. He's going to make, there's going to be large bodies of water that he will create such that it will transform the world. And so that instead, in once places of desert, there will be all sorts of trees. And so again, there's a question here, is this figurative? Is this, is actually, is, or is this symbolic of some actual activity that's, uh, national activity that's going to take place. The earth, and though oh, there may be de- open debate about that, the, the ultimate point of this is that the one who is behind it all, the one who meets all of Israel's needs, is none other than God himself. God will meet their needs. Why? Because the he is, the, he is the creator of all heaven and earth. He is the Lord God. He has created this world, and so there's nothing that he cannot accomplish in this world. He spoke the world. Why cannot he control the world and every event in it? So God promised to help his chosen people, not because they're worthy, not because they're faithful. In fact, they're sinful, and that's why they're in captivity in Babylon. They aren't. And tell you the truth, we aren't either, right? As the people of God today, we, God helps his chosen people, not because we're worthy, not because we're faithful. Oftentimes we're unfaithful, but God is faithful. God helps because he's faithful. Whatever arises in the world, we know that we have a God who has chosen to, us from eternity past. We can think about Ephesians chapter one, how he chose us and redeemed us from eternity past. We can think of Romans 8, 28 through 30, to 30, where God predestined us to salvation and he ensures our eventual glorification. God chose us for salvation. And I want to read to you verses 31, 32 of Romans 8, that passage that shortly, that immediately follows that passage on the great, the sovereignty of God and salvation. So what then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to the fact that God is in control of everything in our lives, that he's controlled from, our, from eternity past to eternity future? Our salvation from beginning to end is all in God's hand and completely in control. Well, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And this is a great truth. Because our God who chose us from eternity past and gave us his son is not going to hold back anything from us. He's already given us his son to bring about the accomplishment of our salvation. What else would he withhold? If he gave up his son, why would he withhold anything else to bring about the completion of our salvation and our deliverance? And that's the promise of this verse. And that's the point of what we looked at here that God will help us. 
He will help Israel because they're his chosen nation. And he will help believers today because we are his chosen people. And he's given us his son already. Verse 21 through 9, the words of prophecy return to the glory, uh, to, to God's challenge that he will have to the nations. And now he directs his, his challenge directly to the gods of the nations. And, and our third point today, our third is, final point is that God is greater than the gods of the nations. God is greater than the gods. He's not only greater than the nations, God will also help the nations, but God is greater than the gods of the nations, the people, the idols of the nations that they turn to. In biblical times, this was significant because it was believed by all the nations that your God, depending upon who your God is, you would have success because of the might of your God. You would succeed or fail because your God was behind you. Remember King Cyrus? Even when he uh, wrote in his Cyrus Cylinder, and we, we looked at this in the past, this little uh, artifact of describing his victories, that he would often attribute his victories to the gods of the nations. Why could he conquer Babylon? Because the Babylonian god was behind him. Why did he conquer the, Persia, the Medes? Because the Median god was behind him. Why did he conquer, was able to uh, succeed? Because the gods of the nations were supporting him. That was, the very com- that was kind of the common belief, even um, their, their common world view. And so God here then challenges the nations to show that the gods of the nations are really not anything at all. They're nothing. They're not behind anything. It's God who's behind everything. Verse 23 to 24 will indicate that, as we look at there, that these words are directed to the idols themselves. Okay, so let's read the verse 21 to 24. Here's God's challenge to the, the gods of the nation, the idols of the nations. Present your case. Again, a court case there in the The Lord says, bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. So God basically challenges the, the gods, the idols of the nations, to do one of two things. Well, there's actually a third thing. But he says, basically, if you're really gods, if you show that you're a god by basically telling us, tell us the future. Tell us one thing that you're going to do in the future. And if you can't do that, then... Tell us, explain to us one thing that's taken place in the past, in the former times. Explain why is that significant? What is the purpose of why that happened? And why it connects with people today? If you are a God, if you are a God, you can do that. Well, if you can't do those things, and they, can't, they couldn't, they couldn't predict anything in the future, nor could they even have an explanation for why the events took place in this world, because, well, they didn't know. They're not true. In fact, God didn't challenge them, says, do a third thing. Well, just do anything. In fact, it says, um, uh, I like this, uh, verse 23. It says, do good or evil. Just do something to show that, that make us, to make the people kind of realize, oh, that God's real. It's, we're, we should be afraid. We should be anxious about that God. But the fact is they don't do anything. And so God says to them, verse 24, behold, you, that is the gods of this world, are of no account. Your, your works amount to nothing. And what's worse is that anyone who chooses you, who worships an idol, is an abomination. That's a warning not only for the nations of this earth who worshiped, who worshiped idols, but it's a, nation, it's a warning to the people of God. 
Because time and time again, the Israelites worshipped the gods of the surrounding nations. But what the idols could not do, God proceeds to do in verse 25 and 29. Verse 25, I have aroused. So here he says, once again, a prophecy of, here, I'm gonna tell you what something, tell you what will take place in the future. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. This, again, is a, believed to be a reference to the rise of Cyrus. Now, earlier in the chapter, he was coming from the east, and the east is where he comes. Here it's the rising of the sun. And that's where Persia is in relation to Babylon. And so if he came to Babylon, he would have to go from the east to the west. But before he actually arrives in Babylon, King Cyrus goes north. Before, when, he, when Cyrus came to power, Media, the Median king was ruling over him. But eventually, the Persian king, Cyrus, conquered Media. So he went north, conquered Media. And then, from there, he went south to Babylon and conquered Babylon. So he comes from the north and he comes from the east. God's God knows this little detail. And just confirmation that this is God who's behind it. But no one's declared this. Has anyone declared this before? No one except for God. Verse 26. Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know? Or from the former times that we may say, oh, he is right. Surely there was no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one. And there is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. God here says, the challenge that he makes to the gods and nations all go unanswered. No one is able to answer him. No one says, is he ever to say, uh, here, to give something of the future or, or to explain the past. No one is able to, uh, to give an answer to God's challenge. All, and the result is that because no idol can answer God, verse 29, he says, behold, all of them are false. That's a, that's a great slab. I mean, God basically just says to you, if you worship any other God right now, you're here, you're not a believer, this word is for you. And it's, you, you know, it's not really PC to say this, to tell you the truth, but we're in a church of Jesus Christ. So, and this is what God's word says. But if you worship other gods, if you believe in another God, or you believe in another religion, or you believe that there's no God, God says here, behold, all of them are false. The one true God, the God who is, who is by this very passage, is, convinces us is that he can predict the future. The one who created the whole heaven, he says, every other God is false. There's only one true God. Everything else is worthless. Everything else is vain and emptiness. Only God is true. And I'm sorry if that shakes you to your core or strikes you as something that's offensive. But if you believed that the cure for, for some disease was just jumping out on your, up and down your foot, I think you'd want me to tell you that, that that's false. You'd want me to tell you that no, that's, that's quackery. You'd want me to tell you that the, the true cure, where the true cure may be, when the true cure, the true God, the true deliverer, redeemer of all, all mankind is in the God of the Bible, the Messiah, the servant. Now, now I know for most of us here, though, I'm trying to think of an application for us as the people of God. We don't tend to follow other gods. We don't go around. We're not like here, and then later on, I'm going to go to the high place and worship Asherah. 
Okay, I'm not gonna, you're not going to hear it, and then you might have a little, little, little idol, fertility idol in your home. At least I hope you don't. Okay? We're not like that today. We're kind of a very secular world. We, we have a lot of, we, we, the, political, the popular thing to do is just to be agnostic or, or not have any God at all. But that's not, that's not what Christians do, okay? But how do we then, how do we influence by the, the instance, the nations? Is that I believe that though we don't follow idols of the nations, we are sometimes tempted to follow the philosophies of the nations. That is the philosophies of the world, the philosophies of men. And they, in our present day, are really the idols of this world. That these, the idols give another answer for why the world exists or why we're here or what we're about. These philosophies explain our world in a way that's contrary as an alternative to the Bible's explanation. The world tells us that all of us are here because of simply chance and time, random mutations. The Bible tells us that we are here because God put us here and spoke us into existence. Sometimes we, the world tells us that we can define our human institutions any way which we want. The Bible tells us that we must define human institutions by what, how God wants. And we get to choose which one we will follow, which philosophies, which explanations, which definitions, which, uh, uh, which uh, uh, worldviews we want to hold on to. And when we hold on to the worldviews of the world, and, and we all do it to some extent or others, because you know, we, we live in the world and we're, we're filled with the media of the world, we, there are ways where we're influenced, and sometimes we don't know until we, we're struck by Scripture, and it's like, oh, I've been thinking wrong all along. But our choice is to always choose. If you have a choice between the world's views and God's views, we need to trust in God's views. We need to trust in God's explanations, God's definitions, God's worldview. Because to do otherwise is to practice a form of idolatry. So we must trust in him who is greater than the gods and the philosophies and all the other alternative explanations of our world. We trust in a God who is behind everything in this world. And we don't need to be afraid because we know that God is going to help us because we're his chosen nation. As we conclude, the, the tiny nation of Judah in the 7th century faced an, a, full, a full onslaught of tumultuousness. They faced time wave after wave of, of foreign nations whether it was the Aram-Israel alliance, whether it was the Assyrian uh, empire, whether it was the Babylonian empire. And then by the, time, uh, by the times of their free of captivity, it would be a new wave of the Persians. And time and time again, these, these, things, these enemy nations surrounded them. And as terrible as the, the events of their day seemed, God allowed them to all happen for the people of Israel. Why? And this is, by the way, this is an answer for even for why God allows the... Why, the, the the tumultuous events in our lives, in our days. Because he wants to show us that God is in control. That we are ultimately, we cannot trust in anything of man. It's not humanism. It's not other religions and other philosophies. Our trust must ultimately be in God. This is for the people of God, for Israel. This is true for the people of God, the church today. And it's, much, and, it's, 
and it's not just true for those of us who are in the church, but it's true for all the coastlands, all the nations. You know, it's kind of striking at the, at the end of chapter 41, he leaves them with pretty dire straits. Behold, all of your gods, all of them are false. They're worthless. They're emptiness. But God does not leave them without hope. Because in the very next verse, which we'll start looking at next time, chapter 42, verse 1, he starts this to them. Behold, my servant. Yes, your idols, your philosophies, they're all empty. But look at my servant. Consider my servant, the Messiah, my chosen one, whom he will send. And he is ultimately, Jesus Christ is the ultimate hope of us all. May that, may he be our constant hope and treasure. And may, if you have not, if you're here, if you're trusting in anything else but Jesus Christ, may today you realize that eventually you will find that all that you trust in is going to be, is going to be empty and void and nothing. And God wants you to learn that only your hope can only be in the servant, Jesus Christ. May today be a day of salvation. May you reflected here. You saw the elements of communion, reminded of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. May today you believe upon him and put your faith in him for your salvation and deliverance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for our God being our God who is greater than the tumultuous events of our days. And though, Lord, we sometimes fear and we're distressed and we don't know what to do, Lord, we know that we can turn to you in comfort and peace. Give us comfort, Lord. Give us comfort knowing that you are our help and we, because you are our God and we are your people. And you chose us from eternity past for a purpose. And Lord, you will accomplish your purpose. You are orchestrating, in fact, all the events of our world today to accomplish your purposes for us and for your people in Christ. Though we may not even understand how that is, we trust that that is what you are doing. So Father, as we continue to live in a world of tumultuousness, help us to not fear. Help us to know that you are our God, that you are in control, greater than the nations, greater than the gods of the nations, but also because you are our God, our constant, present help. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you. Help us to grow in trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.